0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast.
1: Hello, David.
0: Hello, Will.
1: And hello, everyone out there. Welcome to the Common Descent Podcast. This is episode 147 where we will be
0: discussing genetics. Now that's a topic that's really tied into the overall (laughs) subjects of our podcast.
1: Oh yeah. No, genetics is, it's a massive field of science. This covers a bunch of areas of research Focusing on
0: genes, the the features of our DNA that make us and all living things the way they are. So in this episode, we'll be discussing every facet of genetics there is from top to bottom.
1: I suggest you all have a glass of water, some <laughs> snacks handy.
0: <laughs> uh, Take off of work for the next couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, you know, get a, someplace comfortable if you need, you know, to, to get into more comfortable <laughs> outfit right now. T- this is the time. Uh, what will we actually be talking about? <laughs> we are going to look at... The concept of genetics, you know, what it is, it's history. How has our understanding of how we pass on information generation to generation and how is it expressed within an organism and how does that change? How does our genome, the genes in our body, change over time? How do the genetics evolve? We talk about evolution all the time, but how does it actually get facilitated at the genetic level and then how do we use that to understand life?
0: Yes, not too long ago, episode 137, we did a whole episode devoted to just fossils and fossilization as one of the pillars of the science of paleontology and evolutionary science. Genetics is another one of those pillars. Yes,
1: this is foundational, central to our current understanding of how life works. And we will be discussing it because, like all our episodes these days, it was requested. This episode was requested by both Austin and Ori, Thanks. Yeah, no, this this was a good topic. A big topic, a challenging one, but <laughs> very satisfying to take on. Now, before we get into the episode, some announcements. Speaking of people who contribute to the podcast, we have a Patreon. We sure do. And this Patreon funds our podcast top to bottom. It allows us to give our free science education that we like to give and do all the cool things we're able to do. And if you become a patron with us, you get some bonus extra goodies, bonus news, bonus content, bonus access to us, and you get a shout-out at certain levels, like these names coming up shortly. So welcome to new patrons Alexander, Marguerite, Kayla, Pierre, Luke, Mr. Mister, Joe Marie, Kai, and Jackie.
0: Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Yeah, this is an awesome list. We're still announcing the big lists of new patrons (laughs) still rolling in from the summer where we had our special Snakes and Crocs tiers. So huge thanks to everyone who helped support us over this summer while we had some special stuff going on.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of exciting events, we are currently upon the release of this episode at dragon con yes <laughs> <laughs> we're not there yet but when this episode comes out we will be on the tail end of dragon con absolutely so dragon con in atlanta georgia is a big nerd convention that's tons of fun we've been going for a couple of years and been excited to go back for the last couple of years we were on a few panels this time all of which will have happened by now by the time you're listening to this if you were able to be there awesome thanks for showing up if you missed it, we may be able to release that audio depending on the quality and the conditions. So keep your eyes out and ears out so to see if we're able to put that up on the podcast or YouTube.
0: In the lead up to DragonCon, we also created a special section on our Discord server for con conversations. Yeah. So whether it's about DragonCon or other conventions, there's now a section for that on the Discord.
1: Yes. Yeah. So go share your experiences and your times in that Discord section. And continuing to speak of even more exciting special events.
0: Oh, this this is the first episode in September.
1: Yes. And that's the month before October. It is. And in October, as is now tradition, we have our special event, Spookulative Evolution. Spooky. Yes. And we are now
0: ready to release what the theme for this year's Spooky will be. Every year we pick a theme. We choose monsters. We speculate on the evolution of how you might come up with these monsters. We've done themes like monsters of Greek mythology. Last year was plant monsters. Yeah. This year, new theme, unique theme. Very unique. Very distinct. Will... What is the theme for this year's Spooky Creatures? This year we will be exploring monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. We are so nerdily excited. Oh,
1: it is. This is by far going to be the nerdiest of spookies.
0: Oh, we did not plan this to coincide with, like, announcements for the next edition of D&D. Yeah, one and D&D. with <laughs> the movie coming out. We decided this before all that started getting announced. See, we really should have... We talked
1: long and hard uh, with Wizards of the Coast. Right, and, for,
0: Chris Perkins has been a real a real yeah. help with us. And uh, so they
1: thanks. held <laughs> off the release of that trailer and the news of 1D&D for this. No, that's
0: uh, <laughs> no, no, no. just serendipitous and very convenient. <laughs> we will be evolving some of our favorite iconic Dungeons & Dragons monsters over the course of October. If you haven't listened to Spooky before, check out our our last previous year Spooky series and be ready for this year. Four episodes every Saturday in October. Stay tuned. It's gonna get weird.
1: And with those announcements out of the way, we can now reach our first official segment of the episode, the news. Every episode, we gather up some recent science, evolutionary, geological, fossil, paleontological newses to keep us up to date and on the trend with what's happening in science. David, what's the news? Well, I've
0: got two newses today. Oh, Yeah, how about that? This first one is about the diets of early birds Hmm. and what it means for the world that early birds lived in. This is research by Han Hu et al. in the journal eLife, and we will link in the blog post, link in the episode description, to an article on earth.com from Andre Ionescu. This research looked specifically at one particular type of bird from the early Cretaceous called Jeholornis. Uh, We have certainly mentioned Jeholornis on the podcast before. This is a Chinese fossil species, one of the earliest true birds, like not quite as early as Archaeopteryx, but one of the very earliest members of the bird lineage dating back to around 120 million years ago. This study was specifically interested in trying to determine what Jeholornis was eating. And this is a question that goes back to the very first specimen ever described. Back in 2002, the first specimen of Jeholornis was interpreted as a seed eater. Hmm. uh, What we call granivorous, Hmm. like grain eating (laughs) grain. (laughs) Yeah. Because there were seeds associated with the fossil that were interpreted as gut contents, like seeds that were in its belly. But uh, birds today get seeds in their belly through multiple different ways. There are birds that crack seeds that'll actually crack them open to get inside. There are birds that will grind seeds up for similar purposes, but there are also birds that just eat fruit yeah, and swallow a whole fruit and end up with the seeds in the belly as part of that process. That's why plants put the seeds in the yummy fruit. <laughs> yes, and that means that birds are excellent seed dispersers. The birds that are cracking and grinding seeds are not as good for this. Because <laughs> they are destroying the seeds. <laughs> actively destroying them. <laughs> but if you eat a nice whole fruit and you get all the juicy goodness and the seeds pass through the digestive system unperturbed, now you're spreading seeds and helping plants to develop. Here, the researchers examined a new skull of Jeholornis that is very well preserved and allowed them to scan it and get a high detail understanding of the whole cranium. And they were able to compare it with modern birds. Like, what shapes, what features are we seeing in this skull? Who does it match up with today? And by doing so, they found that this is a skull that does not seem to have been good for cracking seeds. All right. But which could have been good for either grinding or just eating fruits. Okay. So then they turned to the gut contents. There are multiple specimens of these birds that have gut contents with the fossils and found no signs of grinding of seeds, again by comparing them with modern birds. So they interpreted that very likely what we're seeing is that J. Holornis was eating whole fruits, not cracking seeds, not grinding seeds, just swallowing fruits. This is exciting because it would have meant that these early birds were good for seed dispersal, but also this would be the oldest evidence of any fruit-eating animal in the fossil record.
1: Oh, right. Cool.
0: Not that these were the first, but it's the oldest evidence we have to say this animal was eating fruit.
1: Yeah, like there's, it's very likely earlier herbivores were eating fruit. But we can't, we don't have any solid evidence to point out. Oh, yeah, look, it was, that's what it was doing. Yes. This is the first
0: one we can actually point to. That's fun. And they go in even further than that. The article points out that there are many specimens of J. with gut contents, some of which we do see seeds in them, and others we see gastroliths. So gastroliths are the stones that birds uh, and other dinosaurs and crocodilians will swallow that are in there as a grinding mill. They help to grind up food. But no specimen of Jeholornis has ever been found with both ah. seeds and gastroliths at the same time. Now, it's totally possible that that's just... The fossil record being, being weird. weird, and those all right, we just happen to have not found them. But it could be a sign of dietary variation. For example, what the authors point out is we could be seeing seasonal changes in diet. That during the fruiting times of the year, they were eating fruits and didn't need gastroliths because fruits are easy to digest. And then at other times, they maybe were eating foliage or invertebrates where having grinding stones was helpful for grinding up the food. But they weren't grinding seeds. The seeds show no evidence of grinding. So like a lot of modern birds, these early birds might have been shifting their diet throughout the year and eating fruits when they were available, but then having to switch to other stuff at different times. Very cool.
1: That's that's an awesome concept. And makes total sense. I had just never thought about, you know, birds needing to shift diet and also needing to shift what they put in their gizzard.
0: Yeah, that birds have to swallow stones sometimes. Yeah,
1: it's it's because lots of animals will eat different things during different times of the year. Mm-hmm. You, know, just, you know, Humans do that. Farmers plant things at different times oh, of yeah. the year. If, if you rely on plants, plants are different at different times of yeah. the year. What you can grow during the summer, you can't just guarantee you can grow during fall or winter or anything like that. But with birds, it's like, well, it's winter time, so we can't eat fruits. I'm going to need some stomach teeth yes. <laughs> to eat the winter foods. And that's weird. And I love it.
0: <laughs> so this study has shown, number one, the oldest evidence of fruit eating in fossils. Number two, the first evidence of a seasonal diet in dinosaurs and evidence that these early, early birds were potentially acting as seed dispersers which, if we go all the way back to episode 57, is important because this is around the time that flowering plants experience their great radiation and taking over the land. So with this data, it suggests that there's a decent chance that early birds were a key part of helping those new plants to spread around the landscape by dispersing their seeds. Yeah, and
1: what better seed dispersals than some of the most
0: mobile animals on the planet? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> if you want your seed to disperse a few miles, dinosaurs, big triceratops, yeah, yeah, yeah. things like that, great. If you want your seeds to disperse across a continent, birds. <laughs> <laughs> Send it by air. Yes.
1: <laughs> Very cool. Well, speaking of ancient birds, my first news is about some Australian birds, some large flightless Australian birds, and evidence as to what might have been one of their drivers to extinction. This research is by Anusuya Chinsami et al. in the Anatomical Record, and the article is a press release by Flinders University in phys.org. This research is focused on a group of birds called the, the dromornithids, which are large flightless Australian birds of the uh, now extinct... Uh, they'll also go by the name Mihirungs, uh, the Mihirung birds,
0: which is the aboriginal word for them. Yes. Yeah, the, these were one of many different groups of extinct giant birds. Yep. In, like terror birds and elephant birds and moas. These are Mihirungs or thunderbirds. Yes. There's been a bunch of these. <laughs> yeah.
1: And these are distinct from the current day large flightless birds that are in Australia. Are right, ratites mm-hmm. today. Ostriches, emus, things like that. These included some of the largest birds ever. The largest member of this group is Dromornis stirtoni, which is late Miocene, so about 7 million years old. This is arguably the largest bird that's ever lived or that we've ever discovered. They would have measured up to 3 meters tall, so 10 foot tall, and a mass of 600
0: kilograms. <sighs> I forgot to look up the pounds. Like 1,300, 1,400 pounds? <laughs> so more than half a ton? Yep. These are birds that long for the days of the Mesozoic. Yeah, these are big (laughs) birds. Uh, This study
1: was looking at bones of, in total, 22 of the long bones, so like the leg bones, and looking at the microstructure. So specifically, they were doing histologies, slicing into it, looking at the layers of the bone to see how the structure changes from the inside toward the outside, so they could get an idea of the life history Right, looking at the growth patterns in the bone. Precisely. How did they grow? When did they mature? What does it look like from birth to maturity is what they were really focused on, Uh, both full adult size and sexual maturity. They compared these bones to other species of Mihirung, including the smallest of this group, which was still big. Like, this was still a a large bird. But this is Giniornus newtoni, which is... Not only the smallest, but also the most recent of this group. Uh, They actually overlap with emus in the fossil record. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they came right up with emus and right up to humans in Australia. They found some interesting things. Uh, Dromornis took several years to reach maturity. And in fact, a lot of years, possibly up to 15 years.
0: Wow, that's a long time
1: for a bird. Extremely long time. Most birds a day reach... Full size and sexual maturity in one to two years. Yeah.
0: Birds grow real fast. Yes.
1: So this is very long growth, very slow growth.
0: That's more like
1: T-Rex growth rate. Yeah, exactly. This thing, once again, is aging alongside human (laughs) ranges of growth. (laughs) They're even able to get information uh, from medullary bone, which is the special bone in female birds that stores calcium for them to be able to lay eggs. So they were able to get an idea of where that syncs up with maturity as well. Cool. In comparing them with other members of the group, they found that this growth rate changes through time among the Mihirung birds during a time when the environment was also shifting. Mm -hmm. They find that Giniornis, which is from the Pleistocene. The younger one. The younger one, the smaller one, during a time when the climate was much drier and more seasonal, more unpredictable with droughts and so forth than it was during dromornus's time that the bird whilst you know like we said still big this is 6 times larger than an emu but we're much but we're hitting that size much sooner than dromornus okay they were aging much more quickly likely hitting adult size within 1 to 2 years and breeding shortly after
0: oh like a normal bird pretty close to normal
1: birds still not as fast. Like sure. they were still slower than emus and a lot and other birds today. This gave them the idea that the mihirung birds were adapting to environmental changes with a change in their ontogeny, their growth rates. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That the slow growth rate, which is a common phenomenon we see in animals for selecting for you know, lower offspring numbers typically. Uh, we call this K-selected, you're growing slow, you're having few babies. R-selected is when you're having bunches of babies and maturing fast. That they're shifting from a very heavily K-selected growth style to a faster and faster growth in response to changing in less predictable climactic situations.
0: Grow up fast, reproduce quickly, get it out of the way because you don't know what's going to happen.
1: Yes, things aren't as stable as they were in the early days of the Mihirung's. But it's thought that even with this evolutionary trend happening within this group, that they still likely were not able to compete with emus that were outbreeding, that were still maturing faster, Mm -hmm. hitting maturity more quickly and able to breed sooner after hatching than even the youngest, fastest growing of the Mihirungs.
0: Yeah. That slower growth cycle worked for Mihirungs for a long, long time until it didn't anymore. Yes,
1: and this would have been very likely because emus would have rebounded from things like droughts quicker. Mm -hmm. You know, when their populations dipped after a tough drought or other... Or a cold snap or whatever whatever it was, that they would rebound faster. And that one of the big things that syncs up with toward the end of the Mihirung line is... Emus seem to have done much better interacting with humans, mm-hmm. considering that the Mihirungs don't make it much past that point.
0: Yeah. Talk about an instability in the
1: environment. Yep. Uh, humans show up. This isn't to say that, like, emus push them out immediately. Mm-hmm. Emus and Mihirung birds overlap for quite a while. Okay. Uh, they are both in Australia for a time, but just that, in the long run, Emus' quicker breeding seems to be the likely candidate for one of the reasons
0: they stuck around, and these other large flightless birds didn't. This is a neat sort of research to hear about because, uh, for one, so often when we talk about the evolution of traits, we're thinking of physical traits, physical features—you know, body size and feathers and mouth shape and what you're able to eat—but styles of life history are things that can change over the course of evolution that can have beneficial or detrimental impacts on survival, right? There are many cases where evolutionary histories of certain groups sees them changing how they grow or the timing of growth or the rate of growth. And that's another feature for natural selection to play around with. This is also a cool uh, reminder that it is always very tempting to look at an extinct group of animals and assume that they were all doing the same thing. Yes. And go, yes, the Mihirungs, this is how they lived. But even they changed over time and had a lot of variation in the, some of the most fundamental aspects of their lifestyle.
1: Yeah, because even though this is a single group of birds, the oldest date back 7 million years and the youngest date to about 40,000, just around 10,000 after we reached the right. Con- so that's a lot of time for evolution to be shifting different features of this group. So, yeah, it is important to remember that even within a singular group, even if they are all still flightless big birds, like they look, they're not changing into flighted again or something weird, that you can still
0: have significant changes trying to adapt to the environment that they're in. Well, that study actually has a bunch in common with the next news that I have, but I don't have a quick, easy way to explain how, so you'll just see. <laughs> so, so at the end, you can do your segue yes, once we understand it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, my next bit of news is about ancient beavers. Ooh. This is research by Jonathan Khalid in Royal Society Open Science, and we will link in the blog post to a press release on fizz.org by Emily Caldwell via The Ohio State University. Beavers are rodents that are well-known for a few things, uh, including being semi-aquatic, cutting down trees, and being very big. Very, very big. (laughs) Beavers, I believe, are the second biggest rodent species in the world today, at least the, the bigger species of beavers. Yeah. But... One thing that interests paleontologists to study rodents is the evolutionary history of those unique features of beavers. In this case, the, the central focus is the aquaticness. Because <laughs> that's that's kind of weird. That's kind of a weird thing. This research presents new fossil remains from what has turned out to be the oldest known swimming beaver. The specimens in question, there are numerous specimens that preserve teeth partial jaws, parts of the rest of the skull, and, crucially, ankle bones. Oh. These date to around 30 million years ago, and the author identified them as part of a known genus, Microtheriomes, but was able to identify a new species, Microtheriomis articula <laughs> Included among these fossils, as I mentioned, the ankle bones, the astragoli, these are some of mem- mammalogists' favorite bones, Because ankle bones can help you interpret locomotion. Yes. How the animal was moving around. How are you using your joints? So in this study, the author compared the shape of the astragalus of this ancient beaver with over 300 other rodent species to see how it matches up with ecology and found that it is most similar to other rodents that swim, that spend time in the water. This also is supported by the fact that the fossil site it was found at The rocks indicate an aquatic habitat, and there are lots of fossils of things like fish and frogs. Cool. So all evidence points to these ancient beavers were swimming around. This is exciting first because this makes it the oldest known example of swimming in beavers. The previous oldest example was a species from France, about 23 million years old. This is about 7 million years older than that, all the way back during the Oligocene. Wow, that's a jump. These comparisons also provide new insights into the evolutionary history of the group of beavers. This study concludes, based on comparing with other rodents, that beavers likely evolved from ancestors who were burrowers, and that swimming was an adaptation from burrowing. Uh, And it even uses the term exaptation, episode 78, that a lot of the musculature and the locomotive style that's good for burrowing... ...can be repurposed for swimming.
1: Yeah, we see that in animals like moles
0: today, Mm -hmm. which are actually really good at swimming underwater. And some moles are specialized for swimming. Yes. And they're using a very similar motion of their body to do it. Because a shovel makes a good paddle. Yes. (laughs) This new finding suggests that that shift from burrowing to swimming happened earlier than we thought, back uh, 30 million years at latest and that it might have happened in North America instead of in Europe. Although, you know, we've got a couple of species, so it's hard to say for sure, but now it could have happened in either place. This new species also raises the question of the relationship between being aquatic and the other things that beavers are known for. For example, the author points out that it is unknown whether this ancient beaver was cutting trees. Yeah. And, and they say in the in the paper, we will need to do studies on the incisors, on the teeth, to see if they would have been able to do that. But also, this beaver is tiny. Ooh. Right? The article points out that it's perhaps two pounds. Oh, wow. A really, really small animal. Modern beavers uh, get up in the range of like 50 pounds. Yeah. Like so big, big rodents. I don't know how big Nutria actually. I think Nutria even get bigger than a couple pounds. Uh, But those are an aquatic rodent today. Right. And actually, it is common today that we see big size in aquatic rodents. Muskrats are very big. Yeah. The largest rodents in the world today are capybaras. Yep. Which are semi-aquatic. But this fossil is a great example that you don't have to be big sized to be a semi-aquatic rodent. But it does suggest that when we look across the fossil record... Over time, beavers got bigger. There is a trend towards larger size, which we talked about in episode 144. That's Cope's rule. Yes, it is. And the author points out that it might be that that trend in increasing size might be related to semi-aquatic habits. Yeah. That it might be beneficial for a number of reasons if you're going to be a swimming rodent to be big, since we see it in so many different rodent groups. And that also has a correlation... Bigger body size tends to correlate with lower species diversity. True. These big swimming rodents tend to not be particularly diverse. There's only two species of beaver in the world today. Unfortunately. Compared with many species of beaver throughout the fossil record. So this insight into the evolutionary history of beavers shows not only that they may have over time gradually accumulated the traits we associated with beavers but that we see this trend in larger body size and possibly linked to that shrinking species diversity. That this this habitat specialization might be part of the reason why beavers are so relatively rare in the world today.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Man, I, that, this is so interesting for so many reasons. One, I love beavers. Beavers are super cool. I think beavers are so awesome and immediately hearing about the earliest swimming, you know, aquatic beaver uh, brings to mind
0: when did they start making beaver dams. And there was a quick note about that. I think this was in the paper that as far as the evidence shows us, dam building is something we see in the modern genus of beavers. Yeah. That that is a very recent development in beaver evolutionary history.
1: Which makes sense for a couple reasons. One, it seems like it would be tricky for a tiny beaver. Yep, you gotta carry a bunch <laughs> of logs around. Like, you, maybe you can make a hut. Maybe you can make a little log house in a lake. But you're not going to build a lake. Right, you're <laughs> dam up an entire lake. No. <laughs> uh, also, that is an extremely complex behavior. Like, yes. beaver dam building is really, really weird. It is very complex. So it makes sense that that is something that would have taken
0: quite a while for all the behavioral... Steps to build up swimming, then wood chewing, then using the wood, then building dams like that. There is there's a lot of steps to get to beaver as we know them today. Yeah. Before you are
1: the second most influential environmental architect on the planet. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool.
0: Oh, man. Uh, So my segue would have been speaking of. The evolutionary history of changing life history and (laughs) behaviors in a group of animals that developed to be really big (laughs) over time or something to that effect. Yeah, there we go.
1: (laughs) Themeless. Well, for my next news, I also don't have a segue, but I would like to talk about talking. Specifically how us humans are able to speak the way that we do compared to other primates. This research is by Takeshi Nishimura. At all in Science, and the article is by Will Sullivan in Smithsonian Mag. Human speech, what we is doing right now, is very complex. Yes. But us humans can make a lot of different sounds, very complicated sounds, very nuanced sounds, and we are very good at distinguishing those nuances for the
0: most part. Yeah. Our... Vocal apparatus that we use to speak and our auditory apparatus that we use to hear and the, the, our brain that coordinates all of it are very complex and able to do a lot of things.
1: Absolutely. Now, that apparatus that we are mostly using to make sound is the larynx. It is part of your throat and it is where the vocal cords are housed. And it was, has often been thought that, yeah, we must have a highly developed larynx to match our speech. Now, our acoustic principles, the noises we're making, follow the same basic principles as other animals. You know, we're passing air over the vocal cords to make different sounds, and we're shaping the sounds with our mouth. That's that's pretty much commonplace for most vocal cord-using animals. Yeah. In fact, there are many, many similarities between our larynx and the larynxes, larynx I Larynges. Larynges, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is silly. Yep. Of other primates, that we are quite similar. We have a primate larynx, but there are some distinct features in the things we're able to do with ours, the noises we're able to make. We are very good at creating stable sounds, stable vocalizations, and to change frequencies quickly. Okay. So we are really good at that, while other primates are not as good. So there's something definitely different going on. Many other primates you'll see what they called spontaneous nonlinear phenomena and acoustic chaos. That they're not as good, it seems, at maintaining a solid, constant, specific note or
0: sound. Right. We are much more intentional and discerning uh, what kinds of sounds we could make. Yes. This study decided to look at what's going
1: on with our larynges to figure out what that difference is. They looked at... The human larynx and 43 species of non-human primates using anatomical features with MRI and CT scans of either anesthetized primates or uh, dead specimens where they could look at the larynx. Sure. They even hooked up some of those uh, deceased larynxes to artificial lungs to create sounds and observe what was happening while sound was being made. And then they... Combine this with mathematical models to confirm their mappings, you know, are the sounds we're mapping in the computer matching the sound that was made with our robot chimp, Mm -hmm. uh, and get an idea for what do these different shapes of larynx do to the sound. And they found some interesting distinctions between us and other primates. In all the primates, they found something called vocal membranes, which are located above the vocal cords. And these seemed to be the main culprit in making it more difficult for primates, other primates, to maintain the kind of vocalizations we do. Hmm. It was known that primates had, you know, these vocal membranes, like some of them did. It wasn't known how common they were. And since this is the first full-on study on primate larynx, this is now a, a major insight that this is... Very common outside of us. We're the weird ones. Where we are missing Hmm. vocal membranes and air sacs in our larynx. Which means that it is not due to a more complex larynx. It is actually due to a simplified larynx.
0: Yeah. Which makes me wonder if those features are are important Mm -hmm. in other primates for the way that they communicate. Does that allow them to do something with their voice that we can't do, but which would get in the way of the speech as we do it? Absolutely. And they didn't say anything as to what
1: the vocal membranes might be, how they might be benefiting, Mm -hmm. but that they do seem to be the culprit for the distinction. And it is our lack of those structures, having a simplified larynx that has allowed us to have more fine-tuned and more consistent noise control over the sounds we make. As they put it, paradoxically, our increased complexity in language is due to a decreased complexity in our lang- larynx. Yeah. One quote I really liked was by one of uh, another researcher, which was that this, it is likely that we're able to make these sounds because it is only possible if our vocal apparatus is easy for our brains to control. Oh, interesting. That it's kind of the difference between just a whistle Mm -hmm. and a complex instrument. It's much easier to make a constant note on a whistle because it's a simple structure. Yeah. There have been, though, researchers who have criticized and said that they think the fault being placed on the vocal membranes so heavily has been exaggerated. And that there are indeed primates that are quite good at making consistent, controlled sounds. All right. So that might not be the whole picture. So that this may be a bit too heavy-handed of a labeling and blame, mm-hmm. basically. And basically, that a lot of experts want more evidence. Right. They, yeah, they
0: always do, those experts.
1: Yep, yep. <laughs> that this is a bit contentious. One put it that this does seem to give evidence that the modification of the larynx were necessary for our form of spoken language. But was it... Absolutely critical. Mm. Were the loss of the membranes as critical as it? This is seeming to make it sound.
0: Or is there more to this yes. evolutionary story? A very interesting insight into the. And it was, speech is such a fascinating topic because it is so central to the experience of being a human being Mm -hmm. and the fact that other organisms especially the implication that it this comes from a simplification something that you'd at least imagine this isn't necessarily true but you could imagine that that might be easier to do evolutionarily than to gain something new in complexity really raises the question uh really challenges the common notion that other organisms don't speak the way we do because they're missing something important in partial favor of the potentially alternative explanation that other species haven't evolved the ability to speak like we do because they don't need to. Yeah. And there's just never been a selective pressure for that. But of course, it is very complex. And so I'm sure we will be studying this for uh, forever. Yes. Uh, Also, uh, am I to believe, then, that if you put an infinite number of chimpanzees in a recording studio, uh, (laughs) they would not necessarily produce a podcast?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, At least not one that any of us would be able to listen to. Uh, Well,
0: that's (laughs) a real shame.
1: Yep. And with that, we can wrap up the news and move on to the first section of our discussion of genetics. Genetics. After the break, we will answer the question, what is genetics, and how have we come to discover this concept? Two. So let us start with asking the question, what is genetics? Uh, the The term genetics is a fairly commonplace where like we use it very often we've used it here on the podcast very often it's used day to day it is pretty well known that it deal has something to do with dna sure but what does it actually mean What does the study of genetics that scientific field deal with and surprisingly there's actually a number of definitions you could place upon it classically genetics was defined as the study of heredity
0: How traits and features are passed down from parent to offspring.
1: Yes. So how does that happen? What is the mechanism? What is the system? The trends? What is the unit of heredity? Yeah. What's it doing? How is it working? Now, that is still a key part of genetics. That is a major focus of the study of genetics. But it is not the only aspect of genetics anymore. The word genetics comes from the word gene. And gene is something that we will discuss a bit more later on, but gene both has to do with heredity and defining units of DNA. So simply put, genetics is the study of genes. Right. It is the study of these units. So what's a gene? It is a section of DNA, no matter how you cut it. DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, the stuff inside of all of your cells in all cells, is the thing that... Stores the information of every living organism.
0: DNA is a, each DNA strand is a very long molecule. Yes. These
1: are extremely complex. They're made up of those four nucleotides, specific molecules that, when put in line, make codes. The four are adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine, ATGC.
0: So when you see DNA strands written out uh, in a textbook or in a movie, and it's just those letters, A, C, T, T, C, G, A, C, blah, 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 blah. DNA actually looks like that, but the letters represent different types of molecules within the overall molecular compound of DNA. Exactly. These
1: bind together, typically in a double strand with... Mm -hmm. One of these nucleotides meeting up with another on the other side. Like a ladder. Like a ladder that then is spiraled together into that helical, that helix that you classically see as a representation of DNA. That DNA is inside your cells, these long strands. Now, the strands themselves can be very long. Like for an average human strand of DNA, if you stretch it out, you could be reaching two meters in length. Mm -hmm. And most cells aren't that big, so they have to be packaged This is where the term chromosomes comes in. DNA is typically packaged with various techniques depending on the type of cell and type of organism you're talking about, but by folding, twirling, and looping it, binding it up, wrapping it up into a more compact structure, chromatin, which makes up our chromosomes. So DNA is our instructional molecule. It's what gives the information for an organism. It's packaged into chromosomes. And sections of DNA are called genes. Now, when we say it's the imp- it holds the information for an organism, what we mean is that DNA does the job of telling our cells how to behave and how to function through a process called transcription. This is where the genes come in, that the genes are those individual instructions. Each gene does the job of typically coding for a singular protein
0: different chunks of dna interact with the other biomolecules and structures in a cell and the end result of that interaction is the production of the proteins and enzymes and things that become part of the machinery of the cell
1: yes there are molecules in our cells that read the dna and make rna Mm -hmm. that's transcription and then the rna messenger rna specifically is used as a template to build proteins. And proteins are what all living organisms are made out of. That's how your skin is grown. That's how your hair is grown. That's how your blood cells are made. Protein is the building blocks. So DNA is the instructions. Proteins are the building blocks. And DNA tells you what building blocks for your cells to make, which then makes the rest of the organism. Yes.
0: So if you make a tw- little tweak to DNA, you are making a tweak to what cells are producing.
1: Yeah, if I change page four of your instruction manual with another instruction manual, your IKEA table is going to look very different from (laughs) mine. All this together, the DNA inside an organism makes up something called a genome. So that's the entire collection of DNA inside an organism. And each of your cells has a copy of your genome. It has an entire collection of all your DNA in each cell, which, considering how much information that is, is insane.
0: Yeah, that's a massive library packed inside all of the cells. Yep,
1: with the same book in each cell. But genomes do not look the same across all groups. Eukaryotic genomes, which includes us and plants and fungi and stuff like that, your multicellular organisms, we all package our DNA with chromosomes we all have at least two chromosomes, but the number of chromosomes can vary wildly. Mm-hmm. And you'd think that that would be directly connected to how much DNA and how much information.
0: Right. More DNA, more packages, more chromosomes. Yes. Makes sense.
1: But we do not actually see a direct link between the like complexity of the organisms, so to say, and the number of chromosomes. Right. Yeast has 16 chromosomes, which is four times as many as fruit flies. (laughs) Right. And we don't see an increase in genome size with number of chromosomes, like the number of genes and the types of genes you got. Salamanders can have genomes 30 times bigger than our own, but half the number of chromosomes, so packaged in fewer chromosomes. We do still see in prokaryotes, so bacteria, archaea, your simpler single-celled organisms... You still see, they still have genomes, they got DNA. You still see chromosomes, or at least we use that word to describe their packaging of DNA. But some have noted it as kind of a misnomer because they are so vastly different from our chromosomes. Mm. They're not folding it the same way. And they often can have much more simplistic and vastly different genomes. Many of them will have single strands of a circular DNA molecule that will still be packaged into a chromosome-esque package using supercoiling by either twisting the helix tighter or taking away twists. And it's kind of like when you take a like curly phone cords that used to be on wired phones. This might not be a applicable example (laughs) for a lot of people, but where if you unwound it, it would wind another part tighter because it was moving the coil down. Right. That DNA is a spiraled structure if you twist one part, it is going to affect the structure of the rest of it. And if you untwist one part, so it will take that circle and scrunch it up by twisting it upon itself. And that that was what we used to think all bacteria DNA looked like was that circle. And that's very true in E. coli, which is the one we've studied the most. But we've found since then that there are bacteria with straight linear DNA structures like our chromosomes. there are even ones with multi-part genomes. Multiple segments, like we have multiple chromosomes. So they are still very diverse and they are even more diverse in the ways their DNA is packaged than we multicellular organisms are, even if typically it is with smaller amounts of DNA. And then you have viruses. Always weird. Which are always weird because this is where we get into the all living things have DNA and then so do viruses. Right. (laughs) Depending on whether you count them among living things Which is not just like a, I'm saying that flippantly, we genuinely don't know whether to classify them as a living organism or just viruses on their own.
0: Because as with so many things, the term living is a box that we humans are attempting to place around natural things and nature does not fit in boxes. Nope. They have DNA though. That's how viruses
1: infect you is by injecting their collection of DNA into you, leaving their floating protein body empty of DNA because viruses are so weird. But their genomes are extremely different. They are very diverse to the point where they break one of the rules that their genomes are not always made out of DNA. They can be made out of purely RNA. Yeah. The stuff our DNA makes to then do other jobs, they can have a whole genome made out of that stuff. These can also be single-stranded, as in just one half of the DNA helix, not double-stranded like all other life is. (laughs) And for many of them, it is a single molecule, a single strand that comprises the entire genome. But yet there are some that have multi-part genomes... And some of those are the RNA genomes that have multi-segments of RNA as their entire nucleic acid genome. So studying genetics across different groups can be wildly different.
0: Yeah, it's also worth pointing out that what DNA looks like can vary... In different cells in the same organism. Yes. For example, to use an extreme example, in us humans, red blood cells don't have DNA at all. Yeah. So there's even variation within an organism.
1: Yes. So you can get a huge amount of diversity and different functioning genomes when looking at different groups and different parts of life. But this is a key thing to study because it's what makes life the way it is. Everything you see about an organism is affected by its DNA. The way you grow, the way you develop, what features you physically have, what body chemistry you're capable of, what color you are, all of those things are going to be affected by the genetics of that organism. So it's an important question to be able to investigate when you're wanting to understand different forms of life. And that is very much how the study of genetics got its start. Specifically though, it was the search for the answer to heredity.
0: Yes. There is this feature that scientists and even not scientists had noticed for a long, 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 long time. Offspring look like their parents. Yeah, obviously. Like Like, children look like their parents. There is a similarity there, which yeah, makes total sense. Sure. You came from that person. That makes total sense. But it was this big open question for a long time among scientists who like to know the answers to things. Mm -hmm. Why, though? Yes. What what actually is it that links parent and offspring that makes them similar organisms? How is that information jumping
1: from one generation to the next? And the interesting thing is we were utilizing the mechanics of heredity before we had any answers because we were domesticating and breeding animals and plants selectively for those traits using
0: the transfer of heredity. Absolutely. For years and years. And not even like in the accidental way. No. Like we happened to do. People have known about heredity because it it would come up in human lineages. Mm -hmm. And you'd have all these old school phrases about, you know, maintaining bloodlines and things like that. People have very consciously understood that heredity of traits is a thing. Yes,
1: but we didn't know what the mechanism is. And that left some big questions for, you know, why do children look like parents? But also, why do diseases seem to follow a bloodline?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Why does this bloodline all have the same disease? And man, there were some wild old theories. Oh, yeah. Like, the old ideas run the gamut of pretty kind of close to where we are today. And just, wow, that's a super weird sci-fi concept. Some of the oldest go back to Hippocrates and Aristotle, who had their theories, their ideas. Of course they did. Hippocrates is actually fairly similar to what Darwin would later propose, which we'll talk about, which was that there was heredity material just kind of throughout the body.
0: Yeah, just floating around. Floating
1: around, and it would get concentrated into the germ cells right. and right. germ, passed
0: on. Germ cells are the reproductive cells. Yes, so pollen and seeds and plants, sperm and eggs and animals, the, the parts that are used to create offspring. Yes,
1: and back then it was a much more general term of the thing that would be spread, you know, yes. that, <laughs> that would be used to <laughs> propagate, which is,
0: you know, that's, you're, you're not, Holy wrong. Well, that's that's pretty close for a couple thousand years ago or whatever. But it was a more
1: abstract, you know, the essence from the body. Right. Aristotle's was even more abstract in that it was the non-physical form, effectively the soul. Like the spirit. The spirit mm-hmm. of the organism that was transmitted through physical means like semen and menstrual blood specifically. like, okay. And that those would mix. Huh. Ancient ideas from India had to do with four factors the mother's reproductive material, the father's reproductive material, the diet of the mother, sure. and the soul that would eventually embody the fetus sure. would then all be mixed together to form 16 different factors that through karma and the soul would be deter- would determine the baby. Huh. Yeah, a very complex yeah, listing yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's many, many steps to that mm-hmm. idea. One of the most fun ones is pre-formation theory, which is the idea that sperm were just little itty-bitty babies. Yes. Little preformed babies that would then unfold and grow in the womb.
0: Yep, and just just get bigger and bigger and become a full-size baby. Yes. Within each of us, there are many (laughs) tiny babies waiting to be bigger babies.
1: Armies (laughs) of little folded up babies. We contain
0: multitudes. And then we kind of come back around when
1: Darwin in 1859 publishes Origin of Species and suggests Pangenesis, the idea that each cell is propagating bits of its... At that time, they thought cytoplasm, the the outside of the cell and the, the or the inside juices of the cell. And those would just kind of circulate through the body and then eventually be gathered in the germ cells. And that's what would propagate. So that was... that. We kind of came back to that sort of idea mm-hmm. and gave a name to it. And that was kind of the most promoted idea, at least at that time. But that was about all we had.
0: And that was a problem. Yes. Because, you know, even though we're looking at it from, you know, a place of knowledge from the future, uh, you can tell that that's not a particularly well thought out. It wasn't really a very solid understanding. And as we discussed in episode 28 and episode 56, that was a problem for the thing that Darwin was known for, yes this idea of descent with modification by means of natural selection, Darwin's idea of evolution, that as time goes on, parents have offspring and offspring become parents of more offspring and traits change over time in response to survival differential between different individuals, that whole concept really hinges on heritability yes that that is a key part of darwin's concept of natural selection is that traits are passed down and the more beneficial traits mean more survival and therefore more babies to pass down the traits and the fact that darwin didn't really have a good solid answer to how those traits are passed down which wasn't his fault no one had a good well not that he knew of yeah had a good solid answer to that question that was a big weakness of his original conception of natural selection
1: Exactly. It we are missing the information as to how
0: actually
1: is that info passed and what's being changed what's changing to allow natural
0: selection to adapt. You know, what what are yes. the mechanisms? It's not just <laughs> that offspring looks like parent, it's that offspring looks almost like parent. Yes. That there are differences no offspring a well, little among humans for example mm-hmm. and among most most animals. No offspring is exactly the same as the parent. So what is that mechanism? And it would be a while before we
1: actually had an answer to that. Darwin did not learn this answer. Nope. But even though we did not have the mechanism, we still learned more and more about heredity. And we started to learn the mechanisms of heredity before we learned about DNA and what was doing it. Mm -hmm. During the 18th century, it became very popular for plant hybridization to be a focus of research and hobby even. And through that, a ton was learned about the specifics of breeding and the side effects, what the offspring look like due to different breeding situations. Famous researchers like Linnaeus and others were well known for making observations about this hybridization and were actually able to make note of some Key features of heredity and what we now know about genetics, things like hybrid sterility, things like back crossing and the the benefits of multiple hybridizations, even the concept of dominance, dominant genes. Nowadays, we know that when genes meet up, very often there is a gene that can dominate the other and be expressed just ignoring the recessive gene. But even before we knew about genes, they were able to note some traits overpowered others. So we were starting to build the blocks of how does heredity work? What are the outcomes? What are the patterns? We still don't know why it's happening.
0: Right. It it reminds me of the history of physics, Mm -hmm. of learning how atomic and subatomic particles interact with each other before we actually identified what those particles were.
1: Yes. Or like noticing that, hey, you know what?
0: The planets move in a particular way. <laughs> What's making them move that way? We know they move. We see all the patterns. We didn't know gravity existed, but we understood how gravity worked. Yes. So we were we were starting to understand how genetics works, even though we didn't actually know what genetics was yet.
1: Yes. Then we come to Gregor Mendel, who is often noted as the father of genetics. Now, this was still not genetics as we know it. We still didn't know about genes and dna and the word had not been used yet Mm -hmm. but gregor mendel is the one famous for listing out a really comprehensive description of how heredity works gregor mendel was a 19th century augustine augustinian monk who spent much of his time in the monastery gardens hybridizing pea plants playing with plants just kind of doing it because he was interested he was interested in science and education. He was not setting out. There was one article that said that he did not set out to conduct the first well controlled experiments of genetics. Nope, that was <laughs> an accident. <laughs> he was just very interested, very meticulous with his notes, mm-hmm. and did this for eight years breeding, cross breeding, and observing the side effects of these different breeding experiments and noting. Patterns, noting how traits are passed along, noting which traits overcome others, noting when you have a mixture of traits, and noting how those can show up in later lineages, how they can be passed down but kept recessive. All of those things that you learn in your intro biology class with that Punnett square, Mm -hmm. the two and two and making up the square of four and how they mix together, that was what Mendel was putting together. And he published it. In 1865, he presented his work, The Experiments of Plant Hybridization, in the Bruns Society for Natural Science. And he was applauded for a very well put together study and very well written research. Mm -hmm. And good job. And then
0: that was about it. And then everyone just kind of moved on. Yeah, they said, good job, Mendel. That that was six years after Darwin first published on The Origin of Species. Darwin was around when it happened. The answer was right here. And his work just kind of
1: went unnoticed. It just, no one that read his work at the time in the society or else otherwise grasped the gravity of what he was actually touching upon.
0: If I remember correctly, listeners, go back to episode 28, and you can confirm this, but I think that Sarah, our guest, told us some story about how, like, Mendel's work was, like, in Darwin's library or something Mm -hmm. like that, like, that paper, like... Darwin had access to that paper, but either didn't have it, or didn't read it, or it didn't register, or whatever. But that information was hovering around right when it would have been extremely crucial.
1: And so, since no one picked up on it right away, we just kind of move on through history. DNA was then discovered in 1869. Yep, just a few years later, <laughs> and. It was identified by a research, Frederick Meischer, who identified DNA while working on white blood cells. So we had the mechanics of heredity, and we had the knowledge of the molecule of DNA, and then it took another 30 years before the actual field of genetics could really be said to start, when Mendel's laws were rediscovered by Mm. other scientists. And as they began to study it and find its credibility and start furthering investigations into this mechanism, this trend of heredity. In 1902, an English biologist, William Bateson, who was a very famous Mendelian, very, very high praiser of Mendel's work, published a book, A Defense of Mendel's Principles of Heredity, which became one of the big, hey, world, this, this person figured it out. Right. And... In 1905, Bates first uses the word genetics to designate the field of the study of heredity and variation.
0: Cool. Well, we finally bring the pieces together. Yes. We've got the mechanism, we've got the uh, the physical thing, the unit of heredity, and we can now put it together into a synthesis, an understanding of genetics. Yes,
1: you'd think. It took us a while before we actually blamed it on DNA. Oh, okay. Yeah. For a long time, chromosomal theory was thought to be that the chromosomes were the doing it, which isn't wrong, but we didn't know what part. Right. We didn't know whether it was the proteins. We didn't know whether it was the DNA. A lot of people thought it was the proteins. All the way up until the 1940s, protein theory was very, very common. That proteins were the things transferring the information. It wasn't until we got to the 1940s that a couple of experiments identified that DNA seems to be the main cause. Uh, one experiment by Avery Macleod and McCarty in 1944 looked at pneumonia bacteria, and there are two types of this bacteria, one with a capsule an outer protection and one without, and they found that DNA was the only molecule that would, could switch bacteria from one to the other. Nothing else that was introduced would switch the behavior of the bacteria, the structure of the bacteria, but DNA did. And then another eight years later, (laughs) another study by Hershey and Chase looked at bacteriophages, viruses that attack bacteria, and found that when the virus attacks the bacteria, only the DNA is injected. Right, right. None of the protein structure, because viruses are only protein and DNA, Mm -hmm. so now they had a definitive, which part (laughs) goes into the bacteria.
0: I'm sure this advancement was also helped by the advent of way better microscopes. Oh, yeah. And tools to examine extremely microscopic things. Yep. And then finally,
1: one more year later, in 1953, that the helical structure of DNA and a full understanding of what it was happened. So even though 1860s Mendel and Meischer found the keys to heredity and DNA, it took us Almost another century
0: to actually go, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> the, here, here is finally our full understanding of how this works.
1: You got DNA in my heredity.
0: <laughs> so genetics was a long time coming. Yes. But at this point
1: in the 1950s, now we see a just renaissance of genetic understanding and study and huge leaps and bounds in our studies and investigations of how genes function including things like the human genome project where we sequenced human DNA in its entirety and now have done that with many other species and the discovery of things like epigenetics which is a feature of genetics that can change the way DNA behaves and be passed on but not actually change its shape yep which we're still learning about <laughs> and after All that, it's actually still really hard to give a single definition to what a gene is. Oh, sure. Yeah. There are two main types of genes when you're using the word. The Mendelian gene and the molecular gene. Because the word gene was used for quite some time to refer to Mendel's traits of heredity. That these are the things, the building blocks that are passed from parent to offspring. Half from father, half from mother. Mixed together makes a baby, but those genes don't match up with the coding sequences that make proteins. So these are two different things, both dealing with how DNA functions in a living organism and in a lineage, but neither actually referring to the exact same features and sections and amount of DNA. So there's actually still a bit of ambiguity. You'll see both terms used but not usually specified where they'll say the genes of this animal. And then you'll find out that they're talking about heredity. So they're talking about Mendelian genes, but they don't say that. Mm -hmm. And then this one will say the genes of this DNA and it's a molecular study. So they're talking about the the actual physical pieces of DNA. Yes. And so you'll get a mixture of which term. And sometimes it's kind of portrayed that, well, the Mendelian gene is the old concept Mm -hmm. that's been replaced by the molecular gene. But the Mendelian gene is still important when talking about how traits are passed from parent to offspring. And this is made even more complex by it is actually difficult to nail down the exact section of a DNA strand that you would call a gene because sometimes genes can overlap. Yep. They can be split. Yep. You can have a gene within a gene. You can have multiple genes that all work together to do one. So it is not... The term gene is... More a concept than a physical
0: structure. We're trying to put stuff in boxes. Exactly. And not fit in boxes. That was
1: in a, one of the textbooks I found. <laughs> that was how they started this section, was saying humans have the need to put things in boxes, <laughs> and genes are a great example of how that doesn't work.
0: Yep. Well, and I I love this concept because the idea of DNA, it is made of genes, it is packaged into chromosomes, the strand of DNA, each gene along the strand of DNA codes for the development of a protein the proteins go do things within the cell is a perfectly serviceable basic understanding of how genetics works yes like if you are if you reach adulthood and that is as far as your understanding of genetics works then yeah you you basically have a good sense of what genetics is but with that level of understanding you should not be making any decisions or weighing in on any decisions <laughs> that are medically relevant or personally relevant that are built on genetics because that is nowhere near a good representation of the reality of how complex genetics is. Yes. It is
1: a bit of a mess, but that's more an issue of vocabulary (laughs) than actually understanding what's happening with our genetics with our genomes right. we understand
0: a lot even if the words are a bit messy yes
1: because there, there's not a good way to just have one term that applies to how our dna does what it does so after the break let's investigate that a little bit how does dna affect the way an organism functions and more specifically how does it affect evolution yeah. what are the mechanisms that drive genetic evolution within life We've talked about the mechanisms of evolution, like how evolution tends to function and what are the, the patterns and driving forces many times on this podcast. But we've rarely zoomed in on how those mechanisms, you know, how those trends are actually being facilitated. The key to evolution is variation happening within and between genomes.
0: Yes, we often talk about you have a population of organisms, each individual is slightly different, and then those differences influence who survives better than who else, and survivability influences who reproduces more, and if you reproduce more, you pass on those traits, and then those propagate. But if you want to be reductive, you could also view that as a population of genomes.
1: Yes, and that's what evolutionary genetics is really looking at. How are genomes changing over time? What's causing those changes?
0: And how can we learn from and look back at those changes through time? And this is hugely important because genetics is one of the pillars of evolutionary science. Yes. One of the most crucial parts of the foundation of our understanding of evolution.
1: Yeah, if, if you can look at DNA as the instruction manual to an organism, then the genome is the reason for at least one of the biggest reasons for why that organism is the way it is, which is going to affect its evolution, its survival, its behavior,
0: a bunch of what we want to understand. And as organisms change from generation to generation, what is happening is that the genome is changing. Yes, and it is being
1: expressed slightly differently to show a slightly different organism, to result in a new version of that organism or a new species eventually. Now there are two main mechanisms, two main patterns. Natural selection is what typically is discussed. You know, when you hear about evolution, usually those general discussions are actually talking about specifically natural selection.
0: And that's when I just described survivability this trait in an organism makes it more likely that it's going to survive and pass on those traits and thus those beneficial features are going to propagate. Yes. That's natural selection. The selection by nature. Yes. That your environment is influencing which traits are the ones that are going to persist.
1: Yeah, through hazards, through lack of resources, through competition with other organisms. We call these selective pressures. Mm -hmm. They're putting pressure on a species, on a population... And those who can't stand up to the pressure die. And those who overcome it pass on those genes.
0: And it's called selection because these are traits that are being selected for. Yes. That there is a filter. Life in this environment is a filter and only certain traits are making it through that filter. Or at least some are making it through better than others. Selection is often misleading because it sounds active. Yes. Like a person you are selecting, right? Select the meal you want or whatever, but it is a passive selection It is a passive filter. This is
1: what often gives people the perception that evolution is directionary, that is evolving for a purpose, for a survival, for a end goal of getting better in your environment is that focus on natural selection. But evolution just means change over time, and genetic evolution means change over time in the genome. The other side is called genetic drift, which is just random changes. Mm -hmm. Just the DNA over time getting different, not because it's better for survival, not because it's worse for survival, just because time passes and changes happen. That is also evolution. That is also important and gives us key information, which we will discuss But first, how are these differences occurring? How are we getting this variation? There are many, many, many mechanisms that can change an organism's genetic structure to alter its genome to add variation to the population of genomes. The most famous, the one that is often given the key title as the main mechanism for variation, is mutations.
0: Uh, Professor X taught me all about that. Yep,
1: absolutely. These are what give you super... No, that's (laughs) not what mutations do. No, not even close. A mutant is not some freak organism that has become just unnaturally different. Almost every organism you see is technically a mutant, because your DNA is mutating all the time.
0: Every one of us has mutations in our DNA that makes our genome slightly different from everybody else's genome.
1: All a mutation is is when the code of your DNA is changed from what it was to a new, different sequence. This can happen with the nucleotides being switched. It can happen with a replacing or a deleting or an addition.
0: Yeah, a piece of the genome gets swapped for something else. It gets removed entirely. It gets copied one extra time.
1: So anything that changes up the code is a mutation. This can happen because of something damaging or changing the DNA, a mutagen, which can be chemicals, it can be the sun, you know, like UV radiation, UV radiation. anything that's classified as a carcinogen is a, is a mutagen because cancer is caused by changes to the DNA that causes the cell to act abnormally and damagingly to the host body. But it can also be caused by internal structures when you copy your cells... When any organism splits its cell to make new cells, you know, that's how we heal our skin, but it's also how a baby grows, you have to split the DNA, which means you need to make two copies of your DNA. You have to make a copy for the new cell and a copy to stay in the old cell, or the two new cells, depending on how you want to look at it. But either way, you must copy your DNA. And while copying your DNA, you can make mistakes. Yep. The proteins reading and making a copy strand
0: can make a mistake because it's billions of pieces yeah. being duplicated. Even if the, the error rate is like one in every hundred million, that's still a lot of errors. Oh yeah. It's the same concept
1: of it's the telephone game of like, if you <laughs> try to copy down what's written somewhere else and if someone copies your copy, it's at some point a mistake is going to be made. Mm-hmm. You're doing it many, many times, thousands, millions of times, just all the time throughout your body, throughout your whole life, and you're doing it with an extremely complex code sequence. Now, we have things to repair those mistakes. There are proteins that go through and check and go, ah, bah, bah. nope, here's the right code. Little editors. Yep, but sometimes they miss. Sometimes they also make a mistake and allow that error to stay in the genome, and now you have a mutation. Now, most mutations are, are not big deals. They don't have dramatic effects. But if they happen to be in a gene, in a sequence of your DNA that codes for something real important, it can cause cell death and it can kill that cell because the cell starts malfunctioning. It's not building the things it needs to build. It's not maintaining itself the way it needs to do. And so it degrades and dies. Typically, that's that's it. You know, that cell dies. But you can get negative effects that becomes a cancerous cell and it starts to multiply incorrectly too much and that's how tumors grow rarely you can get a beneficial mutation that's not the more common cuz if you just if i go into a computer code and just go well what if we make this a 2 it's not likely that the game's just going to go whoa i run so much faster now <laughs> no most likely my character can't interact with doors now cuz i messed up the carefully curated code our dna is a very specific code so changes aren't typically good. They're not always bad. They sometimes might be benign, just no good, no bad. You're just slightly different now. These are often called silent mutations, uh, and this is by far the more common situation because most of our DNA isn't actually coding for stuff. We don't actually that that's a big mystery of genetics, and it means that about ninety eight percent of our genome could be mutated without a. Affecting our health very likely because it's not going to stop the DNA from doing anything because that part of the DNA is not seemingly doing anything, at least as far as making proteins. Now, once you have a mutation, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to affect your evolution. Right. Because if I get a mutation in the cell in my arm, if I have a baby, it's not getting any of that DNA. No. That, my, that, dies, <laughs> that
0: cell dies with you. Yeah.
1: That, my arm isn't the one making my reproductive cells. Right. So it has to happen. Mutations in multicellular organs has to happen in the reproductive cells, which can happen because it's, you're still making copies of those. So oh, there's sure. tons of chances for mistakes to be made.
0: And that could even happen during the development of an organism. Yes, An early mutation might get spread all around the body. Exactly. And inherited in those reproductive cells. But that means with
1: multicellular organisms, mutations have to happen in the right cells to be passed on to the next generation. In single-celled organisms, if a mutation happens, that's going to the next cell. You
0: are different now.
1: (laughs) Because I'm the only cell. (laughs) So if it happened to my DNA, guess what? It's happening to your DNA when I split and so on and so forth. So that's why you can get things like bacteria that can adapt much more quickly to something because their DNA mutations are being passed on immediately. But these are still relatively small changes. This would actually be a very slow way if mutations were the only things happening to our genome. Mm -hmm. So another big driver of genetic evolution is recombination. Yes. Or your DNA can get shuffled, which sometimes can make different combinations where the part that gets shuffled meets up with a new
0: section of DNA. And this isn't even something that's like... You know, every now and then if you you shake a cell too hard yeah. the DNA, this is a built-in mechanism. Yes. The shuffling of DNA is part of the process of building DNA in new cells.
1: Yeah, it's very often happens when chromosomes overlap and basically switch tips. Mm-hmm. The end of the chromosome from one gets switched with the end of another chromosome because they were overlapped and got connected and then split but took the wrong end <laughs> with each one. This is a great way to add a lot of variety. So this is a very big driver of genomic evolution. We can look at genomes to try to find evidence of these happenings by looking for a gene that's close to another gene but has had something changed. If it's in a closely related group or organism, it's very likely at some point that was mutated. You know, we can look for those comparisons to find. Evidences that this has happened and how much it's happened in this organism versus this organism and so on and so forth. Those are two big, big factors in how your genetic code can get physically changed. Mm -hmm. But once again, that would also not be a super fast way to evolve. There are other factors that add even more factors to the diversity or in this case, more opportunities for mutations and recombinations to happen. Gene duplication is extremely common in all types of genomes gene duplication is when a gene is copied for whatever reason during replication it gets copied again and this can have usually one of two major effects either you now have two of those genes double the genes and it might still be functioning the same way and so it might be under similar selection pressures
0: Sure, sure. You just May- now have two of them. Or maybe it even makes a little bit more yeah. of that protein. Now you're getting twice that protein in this cell.
1: So you might have a boost to what that was doing, which could very likely be beneficial to mm-hmm. the efficiency. Or you now have two, but you only need one. Yeah. So the other one becomes kind of that the the forgotten child and gets neglected by those selective pressures. If you don't need that one, It doesn't matter if it gets messed up by a mutation. Yes. Because you still have the other one. So you're still making. Yes. You're still making the protein you need to make. If the spare gets messed up, oh, that's, you know, bummer. I don't have two now, but eh, I didn't need to. I didn't have two to begin with. Mm -hmm. So that means mutations can happen with a lower chance of causing negative effects by deleting a function. So you have higher chances of mutations sticking around. Because that animal's not going to die when it mutates. It's going to probably be fine. But now it has a slightly different, a new gene.
0: Yes. And it's a new little piece of DNA that is now part of all those other mutation and shuffling processes. It's just increasing the diversity of genes available to work with in the genome.
1: Exactly. And gene duplication can happen on every level that you can imagine. It can happen on a single gene. Multiple genes, what will often be called multiple multi-gene families, where you can look for similarities in group of genes that were likely copied that are still very similar, but with differences. That probably means that this just got copied and then mutated. You can duplicate chromosomes. Whole chromosomes yep. can get copied. So now you just have another of that chromosome, which is a whole chromosome that can get potentially mutated and recombined and shuffled without as many chances for negative effects to the organism and then you get to crazy stuff like genome duplications yeah. whole genome duplication your you the dna you have and now you have two of it just uh, the whole thing the whole just thing 200% dna this is r- ridiculously common among plants yeah plants really like doing this they do this all the time it is typically an error while splitting a cell specifically splitting for a germ cell. Meiosis, mitosis is just the normal splitting. Meiosis is when you're making sperm and egg cells or pollen and seed cells. When these splits happen, sometimes you don't split the DNA in half to have half your collection of DNA in the sperm and half in the egg, like is typically what happens. Sometimes it doesn't get split and you have a, a pollen cell with the whole bunch of DNA goes in. You don't have half of it. You have all of it. So you have a diploid cell instead of haploid, like it, a pollen is meant to be. And if that happens to meet up with an egg that had the same thing happen, well, they can connect now because they've got a matching amount of DNA. They've got matching pairs. So now you have a four, a, a tetraploid cell. Yep, 200% DNA. These, this is known as polyploidy. Anytime you get multiple amounts of a genome, you have polyploidy. This is called autopolyploidy and now you have a whole
0: entire copy of your genome to mutate like crazy there's just that much more opportunity for changes to accrue and those changes could still be fatal yes. or benign or or whatever but it's just that much more experimenting ground for this more or less random process of just genetic changes happening over time.
1: It's kind of the genetic equivalent of the those animals that have lots and lots of babies. You're more likely that some of your babies will make it through and your lineage will be passed on and make it to the to adulthood because you increase the chances. If you only have one baby, if it dies that's your whole lineage. So something going wrong is much more devastating to a single offspring organism than to one that has 30 babies every year. That's the same thing here. If I only have one genome, if something goes wrong, there's higher chances that it could mess me up. But if I have two genomes...
0: Or three or four, because (laughs)
1: plants are nuts. (laughs) There are lineages where it has been noted, evidence of four separate genome duplications. Yes. So now, even if that genome gets horribly mutated... I've still got copies of all the functioning versions of the gene in this genome or that genome, so I still can do all the biological functions I need to as a plant, and I'm getting a bunch of diversity. You know, I could still get a cancerous mutation and, mm-hmm. and die, but it's less likely that a function is going to be deleted, that I need to survive. Now I have backups. These often have been noted, evidences of genome duplications often sync up with periods of diversification within a lineage throughout their history and fossil record because suddenly they have a new genetic standard to evolve from and that has given them opportunities to evolve very quickly. And that's not even the weirdest way to get new genes. Lateral gene transfer is literally taking a gene from one organism and moving it to another one. And this specifically is between species. Yes. So not taking my genes and moving them to my offspring, but taking this organism's gene and moving it to this different species of organism's genome. This is mostly found in prokaryotes and bacteria. Bacteria have mechanisms to do this. Yes, it's called conjunction, where they can connect to one another Trade
0: genetics, trade genes, and then go about their way. Yep, which is what a wanky sci-fi concept. Oh, yeah. Of just like, all right, hey, I was going to go in that really hot water over there. Well, hang on, take some of these genes for surviving at high temperatures before you make it that way. Yep,
1: this is how in uh, uh, resistances to antibiotics mm-hmm. is passed among a bacteria lineage, a bacteria species, so quickly
0: Yeah. Bacteria don't just have to rely on uh, what's called vertical transfer. Yes. uh, Parent to offspring. Horizontal transfer across unrelated organisms and even unrelated species. It is some zerg nonsense. Oh, yeah.
1: It's very much the can I copy your notes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This typically, though, only happens between closely related species of bacteria. Makes sense. You need to be still fairly similar in your genetics to share genes. But there are forms of this that can happen between wildly different groups called transformation, which is, in my opinion, even weirder, just the uptake of DNA from the environment. Yep, just just hoovering it up. Yeah, just a little Roomba for genetics of if another DNA, another bacteria gets burst, you know, and its insides just get leaked out into whatever oozy environment you're in you might just bump into a section of its DNA and go, okay, num, num, <laughs> num, num, num. Put it put it in the chromosomes. This is less like widespread of an example of lateral gene transfer among bacteria, but there are groups that are specialized, that have efficient mechanisms for accomplishing this. And it can happen across distantly related groups. There's even evidence that this has happened between bacteria and archaea.
0: Mm-hmm. Different phyla.
1: Different phyla that may have (laughs) traded genetics since we see similarities in the genetic code of both groups that seems too similar to be ancestral, but probably traded more recently.
0: Yes, and this is yet another mechanism of increasing the diversity of genes available in a genome.
1: Yep. Another way you can have it happen, once again among plants, because plants... Because plants... Is another form of polyploidy where they multiply their genomes, but this time through hybridization, mm-hmm. where you get crossbreeding. And instead of getting half of that species and half of that species, you get a genome from both of them <laughs> and get multiple genomes. This is known as alloploidy. and you can get a multiple genomed plant, but with genes from different species. Right,
0: that this offspring has the full genome of two different species. Yep weird. And then we get to animals, and it's much, much
1: less common. Right. It is much more difficult to jump between species of animal and get genes to go across than it is for those other groups. It still happens, Mm -hmm. but typically it needs a facilitator. It needs something that's doing the transferring other than the organism. Something has to carry some genes from one to the other. Absolutely. The typical... Candidates that are pointed to are retroviruses, Mm -hmm. which are viruses that when they insert their DNA into a cell, instead of immediately hijacking the functions of that cell to make more viruses, they insert, the DNA inserts itself into the genome of the host cell and then waits for that cell to multiply. Mm -hmm. Then it hijacks these multitudes of cells that have taken that DNA and copied it and bursts all at once. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes it never bursts. And now you just have a section of virus DNA in your genome for forever. Yep. And that could get passed on to a, your offspring. And viruses can also
0: take pieces of DNA when they are built. That's the other <laughs> thing is that if it does burst and produce a bunch more viruses, those viruses can have taken chunks of the DNA of the host that are now part of the viral genome. So when that virus goes into another organism and injects its DNA into their cells, it is now carried a piece of DNA from one organism and deposited it in another one.
1: Yes. As we said, this is a much less direct form of lateral gene transfer. This this is roundabout and accidental and like very happenstance and, and rare chance that it happens perfectly. But it's happening constantly all the time, mm-hmm. so it's very likely that it is affecting multicellular organism genetic evolution to at least a notable degree. Oh, yeah. And we see it. We see the evidences of it. Exactly. We can find things that definitely have traces of viral gene sequences and sometimes chunks that seem to be similar to other groups' genomes. Now, that's how genomes change over time we talked a little bit about how we're able to see signs of that. But how do we actually use all that information to study evolution?
0: Right. That's that's the key point here. When we talk about that genetics are a major pillar of evolutionary study, that requires us to be able to detect and understand where and when and how those changes have happened.
1: Exactly. To map it, to track it, to compare it. And we do this by typically comparing the genomes of different individuals, species, or lineages.
0: This is fittingly known as comparative genomics. And it is very much along the same lines as, like, comparative anatomy. Yes. Where we'll look at the shape of the the muscles or the bones or the organs and compare with different lineages and see what's similar, what's different.
1: Yeah, and we're looking for a degree of, are these two more similar or are these two more similar? Well, if we find more similarity between these two, that probably means they're more closely
0: related than the one that has less similarity. Same thing, just with the genome. Because the genome is a physical property of an organism. We can look at it the same way, you just need better microscopes. Yep. And we can do this at different levels. We can do a simple comparison,
1: just looking at genome size, number of genes, number of chromosomes, basic overall structure and shape of the genome, how similar are the two. This will give you overreaching comparison, But as we mentioned earlier, genome size and chromosome number don't actually correlate with the complexity of the organism or it's not necessarily that genomes are going to get more complex or bigger over time. We talked about in the parasites episode that many parasites show reduced genomes Mm -hmm. because they've given over functions to their host organism and have lost the ability to do that for themselves. Yeah. So genomes can get smaller over time. So you can't just say, well, big genome, small genome, that's got to be the more evolved or the, the more descended, or the you can't make just sweeping observations based on these generalized structures. Typically, you'll see studies that go to a finer resolution and actually compare the genomes. It's set up the genome of one species next to the genome of another and look at it. Gene to gene. Gene to gene. Nucleotide pair to nucleotide pair. They are looking for something called synteny, which are genes arranged in similar blocks mm-hmm. in different species. This is showing us that there's some similarity, some comparable gene sequences between the two, which may be signs of relation. And the more synteny we see, the more likely that this is a closely related pair of organisms. You can also find comparisons between segments of the genome, like segments that are doing similar jobs that are expressing in similar ways, comparing those specifically.
0: Right, the gene family that codes for digestive enzymes or whatever. You can compare that particular section of the genome.
1: So you can do genetic comparisons on basically every level of how you can observe an organism's genome. And the overall idea here is that... As a lineage, as a genome evolves over time, it's going to accrue changes. It's going to accrue mutations and shufflings, and it will become more and more different from what it was ancestrally. And if you have a lineage that splits into two species or multiple species, the longer ago that happened between two, the more different those lineages are going to be. And the more recent the split, the more closely related they are, the more similar their genomes are going to be.
0: Right. When you hear, for example, the common phrase that humans and chimps share uh, 94, 96, 98, whatever number you've heard, percent of their DNA, that 4% difference, that is the difference that has built up over the 6 million years since our two lineages split from a common ancestor. Yes. And if you look at it, later split, if you compare humans and cats, it's going to be a greater difference because that has just been gradually getting different in both lineages since we last shared a common ancestor.
1: Absolutely. And it gets to the point where the farther and farther back you go, you can find almost no similarities, Mm. but you're going to find far more differences than similarities because it has been so long since those two lineages had a common ancestor. This is known as phylogenetic distance phylogenetics is how we build the trees of life the relationships the branching trees of species who descended from who who is most closely related to who that's how we build these trees
0: and it is a grand undertaking of computational power these days especially with genetics where you can just take all right here's 300 species and we've sequenced a bunch of the genome so here's you know thousands and thousands of genes and you put all that data into a computer and you go all right statistically tell us what is the most likely relationship between all these different species based on similarities and differences in their genome and it will spit out a potential evolutionary tree based on when common ancestry occurred between each pair of species yes and you can't compare
1: all species Equally to one another, because, for instance, if you have two species that diverge from each other a billion years ago, then your comparisons are going to be pretty general. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have a lot of specifics because so much has changed between the two. But if they've diverged just in the millions of times scale, then you are going to get a more and more detailed comparison because they're going to have more similarities and you're going to be able to more finely detect where the differences have happened, which is why our practices have changed in how we do what's called molecular phylogeny, using genetics to make a phylogenetic tree, because you
0: can use physical traits to make that branching family tree. Yeah, you can use the shape and proportions of the teeth and the bones. You can use what chemicals are being produced in the bloodstream. Anything that you can compare, you can use for this. Yes. So this is the technique
1: by which we can use genetics to form the relationships between the various species and groups on our planet. But, of course, there are some tricky parts to it. One, you have to compensate for things like convergent evolution, Mm -hmm. because that can happen in physical structures. We've talked about that with wings and swimming uh, anatomy, but it can also happen in genetics.
0: Different lineages can evolve similar gene... Chunks. They just happen to get the same mutation
1: and it benefits them in very similar ways. So it gets selected for, so you get similar segments of DNA that has nothing to do with who they're related to. Mm -hmm. So you have to take that into consideration. There's also the issue that genetic molecular phylogenetic trees don't always match to morphological phylogenetic trees, ones that use the bones and the anatomy. Of the organism. It has become kind of a
0: regular debate. We've This has come up in the podcast quite a bit. Yeah,
1: this is a regular, reoccurring issue that the shape of an animal, or I, I'm sure it's happening with plants, but I haven't actually sure. heard of an example, but the shape of an organism does not necessarily come to the same answer as the genetics of that those same organisms. Mm-hmm. So we're still kind of teasing out how you decide between those two answers.
0: And this is a really crucial point that I I was, I've been waiting for this part Mm -hmm. to come up. it's, It's an important point to stress. There have been tons of examples of where we've had a phylogeny. We've had an idea of relationships within a group. This has happened with lizards. This has happened with crocodilians. This has happened with plenty of animals based on skeletal anatomy and all that. And then someone comes along and does it with DNA and gets a vastly different answer. Yes. And it's very easy, I think, to make the jump to say, all right, well, genes obviously are the better choice. Yeah, the the genetics is what made those bones grow that way. Right, that's the blueprint, like, shouldn't genes be the obvious choice for what's best? And in some cases, yes, genes do seem to be the better choice for one reason or the other.
1: And that is typically the the consensus you'll often see, if not said by scientists, kind of the general public
0: presentation of this debate. Right. Genes come along and fix everything. Yes. Uh, and we are not going to have this full-on debate and discussion no. in this episode. That's a whole other conversation. But I think it's important to point out that it isn't clear cut as it may seem. Genetic studies can suffer from a lot of the same potential errors as morphological studies. Yep. As you mentioned, you still have to worry about convergent evolution mm-hmm. as sort of a, a false signal. You still run into the issue that if you're only looking at part of the data set, you might get different answers. So if you if you're studying the skeleton, if you're only comparing skulls, You might get a different phylogenetic tree, a different idea of relationships than if you looked at limb bones. Yeah. Same thing with the genes. If you're only looking at the gene family for digestive enzymes versus if you're looking for the gene family for, you know, heart anatomy or whatever your gene section is.
1: Because most organisms haven't been, haven't had their genomes sequenced. So you can't just compare the entire genome of both because you may not have that yet. And it is a process To get
0: it sequenced. Yep. And as you were hinting at, with how you're weighting different features, even if you do have as much data as you could possibly ask for, these analyses are all statistical studies, which means your methods that you're using. Yes. So the way you tell your program to digest the material, the kinds of questions you start with can impact the shape of the tree you get out of it. So Mm -hmm. the methods can influence this. And with that in mind, it's not at all surprising that skeletal anatomy gives you a different answer than genome structure because those are different parts of the body. Yes. So there is, it's not like a clear one way or the other, genes are the answer to everything or skeletons the answer to everything. There's all this complexity to keep in mind when we're trying to decide what data to use in what circumstance and in what way.
1: This is also an area that is very prone to biases. Biologists tend to side with the molecular findings. Paleontologists tend to side with the morphological studies. Yes. Because that's all paleontologists have is skeletal r- remains typically. So that's what we use for all of our studies. While biologists can
0: use the DNA of most of the things they're studying because they're still alive. Yes. And this is another thing that has come up in the past. When it comes to paleontology specifically, we're dealing with fossils where you can't get DNA. Yeah, we don't have the option of doing molecular phylogeny with them. Right, most of the time there's no DNA to do. So it's modern biologists using DNA to try to look back in time and paleontologists using an incomplete data set from back in time to try to figure out the shape of the tree, and there is often clashing. But as exciting as it is to talk about a dichotomy and debate and two sides of an issue, more and more as studies continue to be done and as we learn more, the correct answer, insofar as there is a correct answer, seems to be... As much data as you can get, Yes. put it all together. Yep. Like If you have fossils and genes, when we use them in conjunction with each other, we get better answers than if we're just using one or the other. Yeah.
1: The more complete picture you're working from, the more complete answer you're likely to get. And it's important to remind everyone that this level of genetic study is only 50 years old. Yes. We're still, we're still working on it. Or I guess, you know, 60, 70 ish years old. I keep forgetting that we're like way in the two thousands.
0: We, yeah, it's, it's <sighs> weird. We've gotten it. Time has gone. By. Yep. Time marches on. Just now in the age of the Backstreet Boys and
1: NSYNC. I still do that all the time where I'm like, yeah, from then to two thousands. like, 2020. 2020, Two more decades? I have to add
0: two more decades every time? so upsetting. I'm going to go see Shrek in theaters again. Yeah.
1: I need some of that up-to-date pop culture (laughs) references. And yet there is another layer we can use molecular info to compare life. The comparison tells us how different genomes are. The phylogenetics tells us who's related to who or who's more closely related to who. But if we want to know when they split apart when did you diverge how long has it been
0: since you were of one common ancestor right what how long ago was the common ancestor of humans and chimps or whatever your organisms are
1: this is where molecular clocks come in this is probably the section i'm most excited for cuz we've mentioned molecular clocks so many times yes and we've always given a a really brief description so that you know we can we can have that clarification our listeners, uh, so that people can understand enough of what we're talking about to make sense of the important info of, like, based off molecular clocks, which is using genetic information and change over time to estimate when that split happened, mm-hmm. these two lineages split this long like,
0: Right. And then we got to continue talking about ichthyosaurs yes, or whatever.
1: Like, we're, we mentioned it just to explain how we have this idea, but the important is it happened 200 million years ago
0: or right. whatever. I guess this wouldn't have come up in the ichthyosaurs episode. That was a bad example.
1: Yeah, no. But crabs.
0: Crabs, exactly. Sure.
1: But this, this is something that is so important to paleontology especially because this is how we can use modern genetics of living lineages to figure out their ancestry and sync it up with our fossil record. Yes. This is just a, a critical foundational way genetic knowledge has reshaped paleontology as a science and now we can finally actually explain it (laughs) like (laughs) i'm so i'm so happy so the molecular clock hypothesis is based off the premise that dna and protein sequences evolve change at a rate that there is a fairly consistent rate that changes are happening to and within a genome Of course, it's not going to be completely constant, but talking on an evolutionary scale, millions of years, fairly constant, that the changes are happening at a certain number every typically million years is the unit we look at, which means that if we compare two species and how different they are from one another, and then if we know the rate at which changes should have been happening to each of these species, we can count backwards and say, well you are this many units different from this other species or this percentage different from this other species. So if we take that percent difference or that number of genes or, or nucleotide differences and count back at the rate at which you should have been developing that difference, we should reach a point where you would no longer be different and that should be where your common ancestor roughly should be in time. Now, this rate is often referred to as the mutation rate, and it is focused on neutral mutations, so not focusing on the ones that are giving benefits, because those will be selected for, so they are going to accrue and occupy within the genome at a different rate, because they're good, they're increasing the survival of that species, and not looking at the, what are often called, deleterious mutations, which are hurting the organism somehow.
0: Which are going to be weeded out.
1: Yes, those are going to last very short amounts of time because those individuals don't make it. This is looking at the neutral mutations, the ones that probably aren't going to be selected for or against. They're not doing anything to the functioning of the genome, to the fitness of the genome. They're just there now, but they are still increasing the difference from the ancestral genome. It still changes, so we can measure that if you get a neutral mutation and it doesn't get repaired you know by your your proteins then it will eventually just spread among the population you will just have that new code that's not doing anything but it will be present in that species we call this accruing of neutral mutations the substitution rate and if the mutation rate the amount of mutations happening to the genome of that species is consistent via Replication errors and mutagens, outside sources, mutating the genes. If that is happening at a consistent rate, which this hypothesis is based off the idea that it should be, that neither of those should be fluctuating so wildly as for there not to be an overall consistent rate, then the substitution rate should roughly be consistent. And the old idea kind of held that we're all dealing with the same DNA, so that should be true for life. Uh, This was called the strict model of the molecular clock. Since then, we have realized that no different lineages do evolve at different rates. We see different rates of mutation happening, whether that's because of the way that organism is living or the way its DNA repair systems are functioning, whatever it may be, it is not consistent across all life. But it does still seem that there is consistency within lineages that you can find a rate for this species and a rate for this species, a rate for this overall group and a rate for this group. But this is also further complicated by there is evidence that molecular rates can change over time within a group, which makes sense. If it's different between two species and you speciate, then your molecular clock rate might be changing. Yeah. So there are new models, more modern models, that account for differences among groups and the evolution of molecular clock mutation rates right now how do we find that rate you know because i can't measure the mutations between horses today and horses a million years ago so how do i figure out what that rate of mutation was this is where we need to compare it with another modern group another closely related modern group and the paleontological record so this is where it's the for the molecular clock to work for even Modern-day biologists to use it, they need the fossil record or geologic record.
0: Right. And you'll sometimes hear it
1: called calibration. Exactly. This is calibrating the molecular clock. You need a distinct divergent point of either a fossil that indicates, yeah, this seems to be the oldest ancestor of these two groups or the most recent common ancestor of these two groups. Right.
0: Or here is the earliest member of this lineage Mm -hmm. since the common ancestor. So we know that it was that the split was sometime before this. Yeah,
1: You need some fossil indication of where that split had to have roughly been happening or a geologic event that would sync up. So something in the stratigraphy, in the layers of Earth that would go right there. Mm -hmm. The the, in Cretaceous sort of stuff, like, like something that notes here's where that divergence should roughly be happening. And now you can count. Well, that's this many years ago, millions of years ago. Now we can compare the genomes, get our degree of difference, and we have the number to count back to. So the fossil record provides that initial number. But now I know the mutation rate of horses. Now I can use that molecular clock for horses to compare them to other groups, other groups that they might be less closely related to or we might lack the fossil record for. So we need a good record to start the calibration and then we can use it to hopefully fill in the gaps of poorer records where Mm -hmm. we might not have the same ancestral information. This allows us to take the branches of phylogenetic tree where each branch, each node where a line splits into two or three or however many is a speciation event where you have split your group. We can now put dates to those nodes. We can start filling in the timing. And this is where you'll see those phylogenetic trees that have long and short branches and stretch. Because mm-hmm. they are actually now being mapped to the stratigraphic record, the Earth history. To the geologic time scale. Yes. And we can start filling in the evolutionary history of life on Earth. And we're still learning about this. There are still things to take into consideration. Different parts of the genome seem to mutate and change at different rates. Mm-hmm. RNA and DNA don't have the same molecular clock. There's also evidence that molecular clocks seem to have been increasing over the last one to two million years, but that could be an artifact of the fact that mutations that have happened within the last couple million years have yet to be weeded out or kind of evened out for the overall scale of the molecular clock, Mm -hmm. that we're getting a too close glimpse. So there's recent mutations that wouldn't make it into the overall genome because they would eventually be deleted by further mutations. It hasn't been averaged out. Exactly. But it does mean that if you're using lineages that split within the last few million years, you might see an increase in your errors, or you might get a slightly different readout than is actually
0: accurate. And this kind of study is where the information comes from when you'll hear us on the podcast often say, uh, we're looking at the origin of flowering plants, or we're looking for the origin of Snakes and molecular data suggests that the origin, the divergence of this group, should be somewhere around this time period. Yes. And that is, we are using genetic comparison to say, yeah, here's where we estimate this amount of difference. This is the timing we estimate we should be seeing given the amount of difference, divergence we see in the genomes. And it is also why often when we make that comment, it is to then go, this new fossil uh, makes that complicated. Yes. Yes, we have found a fossil that is looks like it's very close to that divergence point, but it is a different age than what the molecular data estimated that divergence would be. And then we have to go looking and we have to say, all right, have we misidentified this fossil? Yeah, is it not what well, it looks like it is? we ha- We made a bad naming of it. Right. Is our dating of this fossil off and therefore our time is off? Or is our molecular data incomplete? Are are we using, now that we have this fossil, if we use this to further calibrate the tree, the molecular clock, what does that tree look like? What is the date for the divergence of that group now look like? So every new fossil we get is potentially bettering, improving our molecular clock estimates. Yeah,
1: and as we mentioned, this is still a fairly recent field of study that we are still identifying the possible sources
0: of error we are just on the cusp still of what we can do with genetics to learn about evolutionary history yes and speaking of using genetics to learn about evolutionary history and things that we're just on the cusp of we've had an entire genetics episode here without even mentioning ancient dna oh yeah the fact that we can can get DNA from younger fossils, and we haven't mentioned it here because we did a whole episode about ancient DNA. Yes, we did. Episode 34. Go listen to that. And then it leads very nicely in episode 35 where we talk about de-extinction. Yep. Because by the end of that episode, you're wondering.
1: Yes. <laughs> and
0: the cool thing is that with ancient
1: DNA, we'd still be using these same practices of comparison and phylogenetics. We're just using it with old DNA. Yeah. And... As you said, we're still learning a ton. We still don't know why so much of so many genomes seem to be junk data. Mm -hmm. We still don't know fully how all the complexities of how DNA changes, how it repairs itself. How do we track that? It is still a, it is an extremely complex molecule with extremely complex behaviors. So we are learning every day how that molecule is functioning, and then how we can use that to learn about the evolution it drives.
0: Yes. Which is one of those fun statements in science. I think it's very easy to hear that and get the impression, and we've talked about this on the podcast, get the impression that it's like, oh, okay, then do we really know what we're doing at all? Is all of this going to be different five years from now? And the answer is, no, probably not. Probably not. A lot of work has gone into this. We have a very good understanding of DNA. But what it does mean is that there is a lot more refinement to be had. Yes. That the places where we are still uncertain, where we do still run into error and, and, and uncertainties and in inexact imprecision in are going to get better and better and more and more precise. And those those foggy areas are going to continue to clear. And when they do, we're going to learn some really crucial, important things. Yes.
1: We're learning as we go. We still know a ton, but there's still a ton for us to learn. And with that, we can wrap up this discussion of genetics. Uh, this is a big topic. I'm sure there's a ton we didn't mention that might have been expected. We did not go into a ton about how DNA actually physically functions. Mm-hmm. We didn't go into a lot about the evolution of it. That is a, That can be a whole nother discussion.
0: If you want to hear that, let us know. We'll do it in another episode.
1: Absolutely. If there are any parts of the study of genetics that we didn't touch on, that you have questions on, you can always ask and get in touch with us with the usual ways of
0: email and social media. There will also be links in the blog post for those who want to dive deeper.
1: Yes. But to wrap up the episode and speaking of asking us questions, our last section is our patron question. One of the other benefits that patrons get at certain levels is to ask us a question that we will answer on episode. And
0: this time we have a question that's quite fitting for this episode. What's our question, David? Yeah, this is a genetics question. This comes from Michael, who says, In the Marvel comics, so right up our alley. Hey! The Kree, alright, so the Kree are an alien race that do a lot of genetic tinkering yeah the Cree are described as being genetically stagnant and not gaining mutations like humans do in real life are there organisms that have exceptionally low rates of mutation could an organism ever evolve such that these errors no longer occur
1: very good question and to your first question Yes, there are indeed organisms that seem to have especially low rates of mutation, rates of evolution. We've mentioned on on fairly recent episodes, there's been news pieces on the tuatara and the coelacanth, Mm -hmm. both which have been noted that they do not seem to accrue mutations and changes as quickly. Mm -hmm. They are still mutating and evolving and changing, but it is notably slower than what we typically averagely expect. There was also a study that noted paramecia that seemed to be able to go thousands of generations with basically no error in their DNA replication. Weird. Yeah. I couldn't find a mechanism explanation of like how they're achieving that, mm. but that there are organisms that seem to just be able to avoid it. So yes, maybe there are. there is a way to evolve. Effectively, no transitional translational error in your DNA. I don't know how they evolved right. that aliens, yeah, right? I don't so that I couldn't find any mention of what it might be causing that to then to avoid errors. Uh, so I don't know if that's something you could say just could likely be evolved in any lineage. It might be something about paramecia that changes
0: their rate of mutation. So yeah, so yeah, at the very least, there are l- slower and faster rates of mutation, if not very commonly. No rate of mutation.
1: Yeah. And if it was said that the Cree just don't mutate as quickly as us, then yeah, that's perfectly it, possible. Totally reasonable. There's, there's a bunch of reasons that could happen, and we see it happen in lots of life here. Also, lack of mutation does not mean stagnant evolution. There was an example of some uh, archaea bacteria that in a study where they were introduced to more acidic waters, these were sulfur-eating bacteria from... The Yellowstone Springs, they raised the acidity in the environments they were in, and three strains exhibited a new resistance to the acid, two of which did it by mutation, one of which did it through epigenetics, Mm -hmm. where the activations and the functioning of the DNA was switched
0: without changing the code. Right. The structure of the DNA doesn't change, but the behavior of the DNA changes. Yes.
1: And epigenetical changes can be passed on to offspring. So if the Kree had epigenetics that allowed for stuff like this, they could still be evolving and adapting to scenarios. Right. Even if their genome is not changing
0: very much. Exactly. A fascinating question. Someday we'll have a whole long-winded discussion about genetics in fiction oh yeah well because ever since genetics became a thing uh, and and the structure of dna became known and the mechanism of dna became known science fiction writers have had a field day yep just going nuts with all sorts of ideas about how can we sci-fi up genetics yes
1: cool question absolutely Uh, i had fun looking that stuff up and with that finally we can wrap up our episode Stop talking about genetics for now. For now. For now.
0: But if you want to hear more, we'll talk more about it in a different episode. Happily, happily. Reach out to us with the social medias and the emails and all of the things you can find down in the episode description. Yes.
1: Thank you to those who requested
0: this episode. Thank you to our new patrons who have signed up to support us. Thank you to everyone who said hi to us at DragonCon, which I am assuming will have happened. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be real sad if we get to the next episode
1: and go, hey, we're going to have to take back that thank you. Yeah, no one
0: came and said <laughs> hi to us at DragonCon. <laughs> Keep your ears out in October for Spooky. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be a lot of fun. Check out the blog post associated with this episode. You can find the link in the description of the episode. Also, Discord and donations and Patreon and all sorts of other ways to interact with us and our community.
1: Yes. And we release episodes every fortnight. Without fail. Without fail so far. So far. Fingers crossed. Uh, our our uh, release rate is consistent. You could absolutely molecular clock our episode numbers back
0: you yeah absolutely you can figure out the first day that the podcast came out
1: 100 percent. so there you go you can
0: calibrate our podcast (laughs)
1: uh not for our bonus episodes though that is an inconsistent
0: no way maybe we'll have more bonus episodes coming up soon Yeah, sporadically
1: can anyone tell us what our average (laughs) (laughs) i could yep i got the numbers (laughs) is it a consistent rate can you molecular (laughs) clock the bonus episodes all right everybody Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.